This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On July 3rd, 1985, one of the greatest movies of all time was released in theaters across America. This movie had a special place in my heart, as it was the movie that made me fall in love with time travel, and then subsequently fueled my infatuation with history in general. You know what it is. It is Back to the Future, baby. Now, this movie released close enough to halfway between the day that I was born and my first Thanksgiving on this planet. This was also the first year of employment for this week's guest, which happens to be for the team I root for every Thanksgiving myself, and that is the Detroit Lions. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. Well, this time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is November 15th, 1985. This is the day that Ronald Reagan made his yearly Thanksgiving Day proclamation, which Every year had a different kind of twist or meaning or what have you. And this year, he had a mission to thank the great hard workers of this nation. Now, to give you an idea of a little bit of what his proclamations were, here is an excerpt from the proclamation of 1985. Quote, We are grateful for our abundant harvest and the productivity of our industries, for the discoveries of our laboratories, for the researches of our scientists and scholars, for the achievements of our artists, musicians, writers, clergy, teachers, physicians, businessmen, engineers, public servants, farmers, mechanics, artisans, and workers of every sort whose honest toil of mind and body in a free land rewards them and their families and enriches our entire nation. End quote. Now, speaking of workers in America, some that I think of every Thanksgiving Day are the great men and women that serve up a tradition unlike any other. You guessed it, the annual Detroit Lions Thanksgiving extravaganza. Now, (laughs) fortunately, we often lose, but hey, this is still one of our only primetime games that we ever get during the year, so it's our Super Bowl, and we are grateful for that. Now this week, we get to hear from somebody that has helped put on every Detroit Lions Thanksgiving Day since I've been alive. He's worked for the Lions organization in various roles since 1985. I mean, these include a vice president of communications, PR director, and all sorts of things like that. But now, he is the team historian. But I'll tell you what, he sure does have some awesome first-hand accounts of my favorite all-time player, <laughs> Pretty sure most of you know who that is, and the reason why I fell in love with the Detroit Lions, including other great stories from the team as well. His name is Bill Keenest, and to learn more about him and some of the other cool Thanksgiving stories that you have, you can head over to the Thanksgiving page on the network. To get there, you can head to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash Thanksgiving. Also, while you're at it, speaking of thanks... If any of our partners on the network have given you some entertainment this year to kind of keep your mind off the crazy things that are happening around us, I'll tell you what, you should reach out to them via the contact page on the website. We'll make sure that it gets to the right host. But for now, let's get into the interview with Bill Keenest. I mean, one of the things I just really wanted to ask you is, have you been a football fan your entire life or was it after you got into the organization? Uh, No, I have been my entire life. I grew up the small river town south of Pittsburgh. Um, I was born in the late 50s, so into the 60s and 70s. And Pittsburgh, very similar area to Detroit, blue-collar, work ethic, passionate people. And sports was such a big part of our culture and our life back then. And for me, very fortunate because when I was in at the time, it was junior high, not middle school, but junior high and high school. And then into college, the Steelers won four Super Bowls in the 70s. The Pirates won two World Series. Pitt won a national title. The Penguins were coming onto the scene. Uh, and high school football was as big as anything. I mean, I remember as a grade school kid getting autographs from our high school football players because they were rock stars in our town. So... I I realized at a young age 
um, the passion of sports and the impact it can have, the, fa- the, the pride factor it gave a community and a fan base. And much like Detroit, you know, Pittsburgh is unique. It's a blue collar town. You know, when I was growing up, it was the steel industry, much like the automotive industry in Detroit and throughout Michigan. And blue collar people, hardworking people, passionate people who loved sports. Yeah. And both we can kind of relate in different areas. Like you said, the the towns and how they grew up. Uh, do you recall a specific moment or game or play where you fell in love with the sport? Um, it's hard to, to pinpoint anything um, specific. I will, I will relay um, one story from my sophomore year in high school. I was on the team and we had won our first couple games and I wasn't dressing for varsity games. And we played the head coach's alma mater and we had beaten them 10 straight times. And all the towns that we played in were up and down the Monongahela River. So there were all these steel mill towns, river towns. And this year's game was at, it was an away game for us. So we're at our head coach's alma mater. And back then, unlike Michigan and unlike Pennsylvania today, if you lost one game, if you tied one game, you did not qualify for the playoffs. So we had to win every game in order to get to the playoffs. And we lost that game seven to six. We missed an extra point. And we had four or five buses that carried the team and the band and the cheerleaders and everybody. And so the first couple buses were for the football players. So I got on whatever bus I got on, the second or third bus, and it was dead silent. It was just eerily quiet, and you could feel the angst amongst the players and coaches. And we started out, and it was a river road. Everything was a river road back there. So it was you had the road. It was a two-lane road, then the railroad tracks, then the river. Um, all parallel to each other. So we start down this road after losing a heartbreaking game and all of a sudden the buses stopped and no one said a word and they stopped for about 30 seconds and then they started back up again. And then as we, as we head out ahead of us on the right is a figure walking and it was our head coach. He was so distraught losing that game. And he had played for the Pittsburgh Steelers in the forties. So he was an accomplished football guy, but he was so distraught that he got off the bus and told the driver, I'm walking back to the high school. And it was easily five miles. If yeah, easily. And whether or not he, he walked the entire distance, I don't know, but the power of that moment and the impact it had on me, was forever just wow this is really something and then we get back to the high school and we're in getting off the buses and as a sophomore um the tradition back then was to pair sophomores with seniors and you know we would do silly things carry their helmets to practice or off the field or you know whatever just do favors for them and just help them out and I became real close to a to a senior, and I got off the bus, and this guy was our the biggest physically largest player on the team. He was a heavyweight all-conference all, um, wrestler, a mountain of a man, right? And his girlfriend was a cheerleader, and they see each other after this heartbreaking loss, and he just breaks down like a like a baby, crying. And I thought wow, I'm getting chills right now thinking about it because the emotion and the passion of high school football really hit me in a most profound manner, um, you know, that first year. So that sort of set the stage. And then as I grew older and just the, the, the uniqueness about the game of football and how it mirrors life, and it really does, unlike any other sport, um, and I'm a fan of all sports, but football is so unique because it truly takes all 11 players on the field at that time doing their job to be successful. And you get knocked down more than 
more than anything, uh, any other sport, you got to get back up. You get hurt, you get injured, you got to find a way back. So I think over the years, and again, where I grew up had a lot to do with it. The passion of high school football was, uh, was just incredible. And um, I think, you know, all that and then going to college and, and, you know, wanting to get into the sports media world and being involved in the athletic department and football. Um, I just grew to love it more and more and more as the years went, went on. Yeah. And I'm going to get into the, into the media part of it, but before I, did your coach play for the card pits or the Steagles or was <laughs> that's, that- that's, that's very impressive. Um, he played, it was, they, they, they might've been the Steagles one year. They were the Steagles one year. Um, but he went to St. Bonaventure and um, he played, he played, I think it, it might've been one year when, because of the war, it was the war issue. In fact, you know, our Thanksgiving day series was only interrupted by world war two. That's the only time we didn't play once we started in the thirties. Um, but I, I, I will mention something because you just rang a, rang a bell. Um, in my current role as team historian, I'm always looking for paraphernalia, memorabilia. I'm on eBay, different websites, trying to find historical artifacts of the lions. And a few months ago, I don't know if you remember or not, but we had red jerseys back in the late 40s whenever we hired a new head coach, Bo McMillan, who came from Indiana University, IU, and he brought the, the, the red jerseys to the Lions. So I'm trying to find a red jersey for our collection, for our historical archives. And, you know, I had these, you know, contacts with websites and and historical entities and museums and this and that. So somebody contacts me and said they have a line on a red jersey. And so I get excited and and I immediately follow up and I get a link to a website and there it is. And it was number 50. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. So I verify it through our records and I want to know who wore number 50. Well, we had a player for one year. He played three years for the Eagles. But his name was Baptiste Manzini. Bap Manzini. And when I saw that, I about fell off my chair. I didn't know it prior to prior to this. But when I was in high school, one of the greatest high school coaches in our area was Baptiste Manzini. It was the same guy. And he was the head coach for our arch rival high school. And it's just remarkable how small the world is and how much smaller the sports sports world can be. Um, so just to, to, to realize that the coach that, you know, he had a tremendous run in uh, Western Pennsylvania high school football. He's a Hall of Famer back there. Um, but he played for the Lions for for one season. So it's, yeah, it's just it, th- those things are remarkable. Yeah, it's funny how things come full circle a lot. And you meant you kind of alluded to it, the team historian, and you took over that role, what, a couple, two or three years ago? Yes, yes. T- yeah, two, two seasons ago. Yeah. What does that entail? What's your day to day or what are you yeah. what's your what's your mission? Well, well, the um, the reality is we're such a storied franchise and, you know, going back to 1934. So what what a number of my longtime PR colleagues over the years in the NFL have also done, similar to what I did, you transition into a historian role because what happens, quite frankly, um, is that teams have all these records, all these files, photos. Uh, newspaper scrapbooks, memorabilia, old uniforms, helmets, whatever. And you're so busy with the task at hand, which is playing and winning games, that you don't really focus on the history as much as you would like. We're fortunate with our ownership, the Ford family. I mean, right across the street from our Lions practice facility is the Henry Ford Museum, which is arguably, if not the best in the country, I mean, it, it'll stand up to any, any museum anywhere, including the Smithsonian. So there's a, there's a history, um, in our, in our team, um, just with the ownership. 
with with William Clay Ford buying the team, his grandfather Henry Ford, and um, and Bill Ford, you know, uh, running Ford Motor Company now. So the history of the team through Ford Motor has always been there. And um, so what when I took over that new role, what what we are doing is trying to collect everything to to catalog everything, to digitize everything. That's a really big deal because if you lose something, if there's a disaster, if there's a fire, a flood, something, once it's gone, it's gone. So our, our, what we're in the middle of now is acquiring um, merchandise, um, getting items, artifacts from former players, older players, um, retired players, hall of famers, and, and just trying to essentially get, you know, as much of a Detroit Lions collection together, get it organized, cataloged, digitized, um, so we can have that and preserve that forever. Yeah, I can appreciate that. And one of the members on my network, uh, Joe's, not Joe Gorsi, Joe Ziemba, he has a podcast and he, when football was football, he has a book about Chicago history. And we talked about how the great fire in Chicago just yeah, destroyed The Bears and Cardinals. So yeah, well, actually, I um, I went to grad school, undergrad and grad school at Ohio University, and went into their their uh, sports administration master's program. And my internship was at Duke, which was a fabulous internship experience. And Duke football in the forties and fifties and sixties was exceptional. They had a storied storied history into the 60s and you know Steve Spurrier coached there in the 80s and and they've had success with coach Cutcliffe recently but when I got to the uh to the sports information department um, one of the first things they shared with me was a few years prior to that all of the Duke athletic archives were stored in Wallace Wade Stadium and much like a lot of professional sports teams have done over the years, you find a room somewhere, you put them in boxes and you store everything and filing cabinets, whatever, and you forget about it. Well, that had happened at Duke and there was a fire and it destroyed a treasure trove of artifacts. And that was just devastating to hear. So, you know, the one thing that we're doing by digitizing and we're also storing everything in a climate controlled facility, temperature, humidity, fire, all the, the safeguards have been taken. We're, we're preserving that. And um, so that is, that is very true. You know, you mentioned Chicago. Um, Once you lose your, your artifact, your memorabilia, it's gone. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, pretty good fan of history and it just when i watch these shows on the history channel about the the romans and even before then and it's like there's so much that has been lost i just wish there was back then digitized where they they could have it and we know what really went on yeah i agree with you there was a a story you may have been familiar with i think it was in 2008 or 9 where there was a massive fire out in in uh, la it was a studio warehouse where there were thousands of original recording tracks, some of the greatest artists of all time, and they were lost. And the story had some play locally in Detroit because Eminem, you know, the great rap artist, he had stored all his material out there, but he had just had it all digitized and backed up and saved with, I, I think I could be, I could be, wrong here but i believe it was like with was within a year of that fire so he had the foresight to do that and but there are some artists that just lost everything and it's just that's a tragedy yeah we had chris willis on the show too over at nfl films and he's they working on that getting all the the films over there um with that so we're taught we're kind of at the end of your career here the historian but let's go back to the beginning and what you went into the media, you said, what was the role or how did that transition work? Well, my, my, uh, coming out of college, um, actually we were talking about high school football. I, I, uh, I had a knee injury a couple of times in high school and, um, 
and I wasn't very good as it was. So it wasn't like I was, I was expecting to play beyond high school, but um, a dear friend of mine convinced me to go out for the school paper. And he said, if you can't play, write about it. So this was my junior year. And so I went and applied and, and, got elected as the, the the sports editor and then the the editor of the school paper. And then I fell in love with journalism. I fell in love with the media side. I love sports. And I thought this is, I, I enjoyed writing. I love to communicate through written word and Ohio university is one of the top journalism schools in the country. And I went there and fell in love with that, that world and did a lot of writing at school for, the school paper for uh, Columbus Dispatch, Cleveland Plain Dealer was a stringer. But then as as my time went on, I had an internship in Pittsburgh after my uh, junior year in college. And I I really, in that internship, and it was wonderful. I covered the Pirates all summer, the Steelers, and they both won world championships that year. So it was a great time to be involved in sports writing in Pittsburgh. But it it, it became very clear to me through that experience that um, I wanted to, to be a part of a team as opposed to writing about a team. I had a hard time uh, facing the reality that, you know, I'm going to have to write about, you know, a team's failures or a player's failures. Or I wanted to, you know, just by nature, that was hard for me to to think about making a living on uh, on someone failing, a team losing or what have you. So as as uh, my good fortune would have it, Ohio University had the best, the number one rated uh, master's program in sports administration uh, already in place. So I, I applied to that and then just switched a little into the into the communication side of the business at the college level initially and then uh, at the pro level. Yeah, and then you found your way. I know you worked with uh, the Washington World Now football team for a little bit, but then you, 1985, you you come join the, right. the Blue Kool Aid. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. I um, it was funny. You know, I was talking about growing up in our our sports crazed community, um, and Thanksgiving Day game for as long as I can remember was a big deal back home. Um, you know, the Lions were the team of the fifties. Um, winning world championships. And that was my father's era. And some of his friends were big Lion fans because the Steelers weren't very successful in the 50s. I mean, they didn't win a division championship until the 70s. So the Lions were, you know, in many respects, almost like an America's team back then. Detroit was a great town with the automotive industry. And so the Lions were a very popular team. And then, you know, as, as it would um, play out, my, my earliest memories of the Lions on Thanksgiving, there was even more interest because we had a player, a high school, you know, uh, hero, if you will, that, that played at our high school um, that went on and played at college, was playing for the Lions. And he was a tight end, and, and his name was Craig Cotton, and he never got into the game because – Charlie Sanders was the best tight end in football. So I grew up, you know, watching all those Thanksgiving games, just waiting and hoping and praying that uh, that Craig would get in the game, but he never did. So then, you know, fast forward to how many years, and I'm, now I'm working for the Lions, and it took me a while, but after I got to know Charlie, who became a dear, dear, dear friend, we were extremely close um, but at one point I said, you know what, Charlie, when I was young, I hated you. <laughs> and he looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I said, let me tell you why, because you were the reason why Craig Cotton didn't get to play. And he had the biggest chuckle over that. And he and Craig were very close, understandably playing the same position. But uh, that was, that was, you know, those memories of watching the Lions on Thanksgiving back then, of course, playing at Tiger Stadium with the, you know, the, the weather being a factor as well, but uh, very enjoyable memories. Yeah. Charlie Sanders would have been a little before my time, but then there's the other Sanders, which everybody knows, of course, and me being born in 85, I grew up uh, like, I didn't know anything other than Barry Sanders. And that's to, if you were to ask me, what's my moment where I fell in love, it was pick a Barry Sanders run, but that chant and the silver dome, Barry, Barry, like that's something that 
like you talked about getting your chills. That's what I'm getting right now, just thinking about it. And I'm sure you have too. watching the Meyer video, those that actually know what Meyer are outside of our area. And I, I just wanted to kind of go to that. You, I wouldn't want to say you lived my dream because maybe there's a different perspective, but when's the last time that you sat back and kind of reflected on how cool it was to be a part of this organization for so long? Um, I, I am blessed, and I mean that sincerely, especially in today's day and age, um, to have been in pro sports almost 40 years and um, to have spent um, 36 seasons with one franchise um, is, is probably something that we're not going to see in the future. It's just the nature of business, the nature of sport, the transitional nature of our world, our culture. Um, so I, I'm very fortunate. And then, as you say, you know, to have have been, you know, with the Lions for the careers of Barry Sanders and Matthew Stafford and Calvin Johnson and Chris Spillman and Lomas Brown and Benny Blades. I mean, there's just so many. Kevin Glover, I mean, Brett Perryman, Herman Moore, um, Eric Kramer, Rodney Pete, I just, you know, you, you don't want to forget anybody, but the the memories of these guys, um, it gives you chills. And I am thankful. And um and and in in some cases, in, in Barry's case, uh, some of my most profound memories of him have nothing to do with a run. You know, I always get that question, what's your favorite run of Barry? Or what's your favorite memory of play? And it it had it has to do with some things off the field that to me give a really wonderful glimpse of why he was so great and um and so yeah i i very fortunate very fortunate well let's talk about a couple one or two of those examples okay. then yeah well the one the one that uh, i don't know that that one supersedes the other but um my favorite football-related memory of Barry um, was at the end of the 1996 season. And we had started out four and two, and then the wheels came off, and we ended up finishing five and 11. And that ended up being Wayne Fonce's last year. And there was a lot of talk uh, toward the last month of the season that that would probably be it for Wayne. Um and it was, you know, Wayne had a great run and no one was really surprised at that, that uh, it would probably be the, the end, the uh, last season for Wayne. So we were finishing our final game that, that year. Our last game of the season was a Monday night game at San Francisco. Okay. So uh, San Francisco was a playoff team and, um, you know, just a, a very, very good team. So the, the final week of practice um, with the reality, we've been out of the playoff chase for a few weeks and uh, it was, it was a long season. It was a rough season. So the Friday of that final week was going to be our last full practice. We were going to leave the next day, Saturday to fly out to San Francisco. Um, some teams when they're going East to West will fly out two days in advance to get acclimated to the, to the time difference. Um, so that Friday, our practice is scheduled for around noon, one o'clock maybe. And before practice, I get a call from Associated Press in New York that uh, Barry has been elected for the eighth straight time or whatever it was, unanimous all pro, not pro bowl, all pro, which is the entire league, which is the, the highest honor you can get. Um, so the, the sports editor asked me, he said, we're going to, we're going to, um, post this. We're going to release this this afternoon around four or five o'clock. Can you get me a couple quotes from Barry to go in the story a bit about being another, you know, a unanimous selection again, which made a ton of sense. And I said, yeah, we're getting, we're getting ready for practice. Um, I'll, I'll get them from Barry. I'll get it. I'll get you the quotes. So I go down to the locker room. Our offices were right above the locker room. I run down and he's getting dressed to head out onto the field. So 
I tell him what I need. He says, yeah, just see me after practice. He was on his way out, so I didn't want to bother him before practice. And we had plenty of time. So practice ends. And I'm my duties immediately after practice were with the head coach, Wayne Fonts, in the media. He did a press session after, after practice. So I'm with Wayne for a little while. And um, we're practicing inside the Silverdome because this is the last week of December now. It's, it's cold. It's, you know, it's, it's winter. And so I go back into the locker room looking for Barry after I'm done with Wayne and his clothes are still in his locker and half the players are gone by now. You know, they're home. Like I said, the season was ending and I can't find Barry anywhere, but his clothes are still in his locker. So I'm thinking, okay, uh, maybe he's getting treatment. I checked the training room, not in there. Um, and then I'm thinking, was he doing any interviews? I would have seen him on the field if he was. But I ran back out on the field. It's empty. There's no one there. I come back in. And even in that you know short period of time, by now, there's hardly any player left in the locker room. But Barry's clothes are still in his locker. Now, I did have the thought, Barry could be a little absent-minded at, time, at times. I thought, I wonder if he ran home. I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to go uh, to his house. You know, he, he didn't live too far from the Silverdome. So I'm thinking about what I got to get these quotes to the Associated Press Sports Editor. So I go back out into the tunnel in the Silverdome that led from the locker room to the field. And then for some reason, I thought, you know what, let me check the weight room. Okay. And again, this is the last week of the season where we've been out of the playoff hunt for weeks. Um, and I'm thinking there's nobody in a weight room and the weight room was located underneath the bleachers. So I think, well, let me just check. So I open the door. And as soon as I open the door, I can hear the clanking of weights. You can hear the machines or whatever. I turn the corner and there's one player in there. One player, Barry Sanders. Okay. And I'm like, of course it's Barry. So he sees me. We make contact and he says, give me about a half hour. Okay. So I leave there and I'm thinking, my goodness, the best player in the NFL. And he's the last one here and he's getting a, a lift in. I mean, that's greatness, right? So I uh, go back up to my office. I come back down. I don't know how many minutes later, go into the locker room. It's pitch black now. There's nobody around. Barry's clothes are still in his locker. Okay, he must be finishing up. I go back to the weight room. It's dark now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe he ran home. So I go out into the tunnel. And again, if I could paint the picture, it'll help with the story. It's last week of December. It's dark, cloudy, dreary, cold. And we're in the Silverdome. And by that time, all the lights had been shut out except for safety lights. You know, the lights that we used for practice were all turned off. So I thought, I don't know why, but I decided to go out onto the field. You couldn't see the field from the tunnel. There was a, a large garage door that had been closed, but I went through a side door. And as I walked through that door to this dark arena with a rim of safety lights on, it was almost like a spaceship effect. If you can visualize that, it's dark, it's dreary, these lights, very dim. And then I look out onto the field at the 50-yard line, and there's a single solitary figure running gassers, Barry Sanders. And I get chills every time I think about it, like I am now. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that is greatness personified. That's why Barry is who he is, right? So I wait for him. I get the story. Okay, mission accomplished. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we still have one game to play, right? So we're going into this game on Monday night against San Francisco. Barry is 100 and I think it was 161 yards behind Terrell Davis for the NFL rushing lead, right? Going into that game. So Barry needs a monster game to come close. The 49ers went into that game, had the NFC's number one rushing defense. <laughs> okay. So 
the odds are impenetrable, right? Wrong. Not when you got Barry Sanders. Not when you got a guy that had the work ethic to do what he did, um, which I am so fortunate to have seen. Barry ran for 175 yards that night. And with every yard, I think my smile just got wider and wider because all I could think of was what I saw two days earlier on Friday in a dark arena when no one's watching in a dimly lit weight room when no one's watching and all Barry was doing was getting better, was working to be the best. And that's why he was the best. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty, pretty impressive. I mean, it's something that, we don't see behind the scenes a lot of times. Right. And as a big fan, of course, I'm biased saying when people say who's the best, it's Barry. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. So yeah. The the other story I think is important to share too, mm-hmm. because I think it it's more about Barry the person and how humble he was. I mean, what what was Barry's trademark? I'm asking you. You're talking about the hand on the ball to the ref? <laughs> he scores the touchdown and he hands it to the official. I mean you know, what a, what a humble gesture, right? Well, in 1993, we have a preseason game in London against the Cowboys as part of the old American Bowl series. And, um, and we were over there the entire week, the whole organization, um, families were able to go media, you know, the whole shot. So we were there an entire week. We stayed at the intercontinental hotel, in London. And um, before we we left, we had a, a special Lions pin, lapel pin created that we gave to every member of our traveling party, including our media. We had, you know, beat writers, our radio team that traveled with us. And so the, the instruction was that wear your pin at all times to identify you as a member of our official party, you know, for whatever reason, more for identification purposes than anything. So um, we get over to, to London and right around the corner, it was like two blocks down from our hotel was the London um, Hard Rock Cafe. Now the London Hard Rock back then, this is 1993, was the place to be. I mean, the London Hard Rock was the Hard Rock in the world. And it was probably one of the most popular, you know, places that tourist attractions, whatever you want to call it, that anyone could go. I mean, London, you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the whole, the whole shot. So what, what our, our traveling, um, people did, uh, through, through the NFL, we made a arrangement with the hard rock that anybody in the lions party traveling party didn't have to wait in line to get into the hard rock because the lines to get in every day, no matter what the time were blocks long. I mean, you were going to wait for an hour if you were lucky. Okay. So the deal was anybody that has their pin on their lions traveling party pin could go to the front of the line and get right in. And this was announced to the team. It was in the information that every, every member of the party got, you know, if you want to go to the hard rock, which everybody did, you don't have to wait in line, you know, just, just go right to the front um, and have your pin and you'll get right in. So the Friday night of that week, we're playing on Sunday, the Friday night of that week, three of our beat writers, were going to go to the hard rock. And from the Detroit News, the Free Press, um, the Oakland Press, you know, some of our main beat writers. So they were staying in the same hotel as us. And they turned the corner to go to the Hard Rock. And the line is forever. I mean, all they see is this line of people. But they got their pins on. So they were following protocol. They were wearing their pins, right? So they just start walking past everybody. And about halfway down the line, standing all by himself, is who? Barry Sanders. He's by himself. He's got his pin on. He's following protocol. And they see him. And Barry knows these guys. And and, and uh, they go, Barry, what are you doing? You don't have to wait in line. You got your pin on. You know, come on. You're going to be here an hour. 
and very polite, very says, yeah, I know that that's okay. I, I can wait like the rest of these people. So he stayed there. The, the, the writers, as I probably would have done, speaking honestly, went to the front of the line. But the humble Barry Sanders stayed there and waited with everybody else. And I just think that speaks to his character, you know, the type of person he is today and always has been. And certainly how he was raised by his mom and dad. And that that really is something. Yeah, I, we all know, we've all known and heard stories of him being humble, but that's something that, like you said, the biggest name in the sport, and he easily could have, even if he didn't have this little lion's lapel pin, if he wanted to, he could have, but to stand there just makes you want to want to honor him and give it, get his jersey even more. I probably had about 30 different Barry jerseys throughout <laughs> my days, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, I don't, now, so, there's loyalties now, but probably less than there was before because fantasy football has kind of muddied the waters and hasn't really, you don't latch on as much for the right, the same reasons. I don't, I, I don't know if people outside of being a true Detroit fan understand what he meant to us as a fan base. I mean, what was it like being on the field, hearing that stadium going, Barry, Barry? It was indescribable. Um, it, it, I, I, I know numerous times during his career, you would just be in awe. And it wasn't the 80-yard touchdown runs all the time. It was the, the one-yard runs where he should have lost 10 yards. Um, and it was his demeanor, his humbleness, his team-first approach. But I, the, one, the one thought I had on so many occasions, and, and this is from someone who was fortunate to see every game he played, Every, every time he ran the ball, every time he caught a pass. But I, I don't know why, but it, it hit me early. We are not going to fully appreciate his greatness until he's gone because he is so good. It, it's, it's hard to imagine how good he was. And, and I think one of, the, one of the things that separated Barry back then and even today is the universal respect and admiration he had from the rest of the NFL. I mean, players adored Barry, guys that competed against him. I mean, you know, we would be playing against any any team and you would see defensive players laughing at their teammates trying to tackle him, you know, in a, in a, in a very understandable way. Um, but he was, you know, he was a guy that could go east and west at the same time, if that makes sense. Um, that's how elusive he was. And, um, he was, he was just remarkable. And, um, I mean, his, his selflessness and desire to win, I think, um, set him apart as well because he didn't care about personal records. I mean, obviously he retired within, you know, a season maybe of the all-time rushing record. Um, he was, he was selfless. He was selfless. Yeah. And, um, being like you said, we don't appreciate till he's gone. I again grew up. I I only knew Barry Sanders. Like to me, it was. I also grew up pretty much with Michael Jordan there too. So as far as basketball goes, it's that's all I knew, and that was to me normal until he wasn't there. And I could I still remember going SVSU when you guys went to the Saginaw Valley State University oh, for yeah. training camp. <laughs> now, obviously. That's a hard autograph to get, but I was somehow fortunate. I got his autograph twice after the morning practice and the afternoon practice. <laughs> so, wow. but I want to tell you, so Herman Moore, that's a guy too. He was in his own right at the time, a superstar. And that guy stayed. I have a photo with me and my cousin. I'm like, I'm up to maybe his belly button barely. And he stayed till it was dark. That's how late he stayed after practice. I, I just always wanted to say that guy is so cool too. That's wonderful. Yeah. That, that's the impact sports probably had on you and I when we were young. And that, that's the message, you know, we always try to share with the players is, you know, you can spend 30 seconds with a child and impact them with a life lifelong memory, a memory that lasts forever, just like you're sharing with uh, your story about Herman. Yeah, it's amazing that I, I can picture it to this day. And it was I was probably... 
I guess, what were you in SVSU, 95 to 96 or 7 or 8 or something like that? 97 was our first year there. 2001 was our last year there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like 12. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Speaking of that, yeah, I've only been to, for being such a big Lions fan, I've only been to one Thanksgiving Day game. And it was when they took out the Packers there back when Rodgers was <laughs> at Dominican Sioux and such. Uh, so oh, yeah. What, what's your family Thanksgiving tradition, considering you've been a different perspective? Right. Well, um, understanding that this year will be different for everybody, you know, without being able to have fans at the game. and um, But normally it, it's it's become a, a huge, a huge celebration. Um, now it's one of my, I mean, it had been not, not since I changed roles, but it had been one of my busiest days of the year because you have the national, the, the top network crew in and it's a short condensed week. Um, and it's the whole country's watching. I mean, it's, it's such a traditional game. And, and I think, you know, sports fans, hopefully still understand. I, I know certain generations absolutely do, but it's, it's arguably the greatest tradition in sports that still is ongoing. I mean, a tradition that started in 1934 um, and is still ongoing. And, um, you know, you hear all the bud- buzzwords today about cancel culture and throwaway society. And it's just heartwarming to know that, we can still probably have this tradition. And I think the NFL has done a good job of honoring it. And, um, and it's, it's a special day. I mean, we're, you know, over the years, we've had some remarkable games on Thanksgiving. We don't, we actually are under 500 in our cumulative record. So, you know, we haven't had, you know, there was a, a thought at one point that we had a, a home field advantage and we really don't i mean we're close to 500 but but just a few games underneath it but um i think it's just you know and the traditions that go with it i mean you know there when i first got into the league with washington and then when i came to detroit there were traditions every year um at every team where that week uh the veteran and the veterans played a trick on all the all the rookies and they would give away f- free turkeys. So, you know, at some point before Thanksgiving, you would get, you know, a notice, a letter, a card or something. Um, hey, th- these are just for the rookies. You guys aren't making as much money as we are, blah, blah, blah. You know, go down to the market and you get a turkey. Um, so uh, they played that on me when I was in Washington. Okay, they got me, right? But when my first year in Detroit is maybe my favorite, you know, turkey, turkey uh, caper. So that first year, our head coach was Daryl Rogers, who had only coached in college prior to joining the Lions. And a number of his assistant coaches had only coached in college as well. So consequently, the, the coaches, they were rookies too when it came to the turkey, the free turkey, right? So it might have been Monday before Thanksgiving, a couple of the veterans get up in front of the team and they have a card and they say, Hey, you know, we got the three turkeys, uh, the market about a mile from the silver dome. Um, you have to pick them up on Wednesday between the hours of noon and two o'clock, which was after we, our practice ended. So it just made all the sense in the world. So they passed these coupons out and, you know, uh, the rookies went down and got their turkey and what in the market was obviously in on it because they weren't getting free turkeys. Um, so what they, what they, and, our, and so we had a couple coaches. So we had a coach and I'm not going to name him. He goes down there. He's got his card. He goes to the, to the deli or the meat section and, oh yes, coach. Yeah, we got your turkey here. So they had um, wrapped, you know, blocks of ice in freezer paper, brown freezer paper. And it looked like it would have been a turkey, okay? So the coach tells his wife, hey, I got the turkey. You don't have to buy one for Thanksgiving, all right? So she's happy. So he brings this block of ice, um, 
he thought it was a turkey, sets it on the kitchen counter, and they go out for the rest of the afternoon into the evening. They come home. This is the day before Thanksgiving, and it's melted, and there's water all over the place. Now, perhaps even funnier than what I just told you, the coach didn't realize he just got tricked. He thought the store was tricking him and only him only. So he gets all upset, goes back to the store and says, hey, you were supposed to give me a turkey, not a piece of ice. And so they had to call players, veteran players. The store had to call our veterans to calm him down and tell him, no, you were supposed to get a block of ice. And uh, so those kind of stories over the years have just been wonderful. But, but again, you know, to play on, on a holiday like Thanksgiving, which is so meaningful to so many people and um, it's special. I mean, it's hard to describe Um, and uh, you know, football family and Thanksgiving go together and have forever especially in Michigan and and with the Lions. Yeah. I mean, again, I've only grown up. That's just the tradition. And we've known that as well. And speaking of a tradition, you talked about uh, broadcasters. Were you ever involved with the Turducken then? Oh yeah. Yeah. We had, yeah. I mean, that was, that was some great memories there too. So the, the production crew would come in, the, the announcers, the producer, director, everybody would usually get on on Monday night of Thanksgiving week and would have meetings with, you know, Pat Summerall and John Madden and, and, uh, you know, Jim Nance and, and all the great announcers, Joe Buck and, um, over the years. And, um, so yeah, we got involved with all that and in CBS and then Fox would always have a big Thanksgiving dinner on Wednesday night at the, at the hotel, at the production hotel. So it was always very enjoyable. They would invite our staff and we'd be able to go and partake in that. And, you know, just the stories that you'd hear John Madden telling or, um, you know, Joe Buck um, telling um, Jack Buck, Joe's dad would tell great stories. Hank Stram, some of the announcers over the years, you know, like I said, Pat Summerall, John Madden. Um, they were just Jim Nance, you know, has gotten to be a, a, a good friend, just a wonderful guy. And, um, you know, those are great memories, you know, certainly surrounding Thanksgiving. Jim Nance was the Grand Marshal in the parade a couple of years ago. And uh, and that's the other reality of Detroit. You know, there's only one Thanksgiving Day parade longer than, than Detroit's. That's Philadelphia. It's not Macy's in New York. It's uh, Philadelphia's parade started a few years before ours did. Um, but ours is the longest, you know, standing parade. So you got, you know, the, the history and tradition of the parade. Um, in addition to, you know, Thanksgiving game that the whole country's watching. So pretty special. Yeah. It's as a Detroit Lions fan, it's our Super Bowl every year. And you mentioned how you, the, the longstanding traditions, history, and all those cool stories from all the, the legends that you just described. I have one question I asked every guest of the show. I'm giving you the virtual keys to my DeLorean right now. (laughs) Go back and get that baby up to 88 miles an hour. Go back to any thanksgiving game or moment and relive it which one would you go to well the one i would go to and i think because of what we've all gone through this year 2020 is going to be indelible in all of our memory banks forever um you know what a year it has been um and i think we've all hopefully learned a lot of lessons from this year of what really is important and what not to get corny, but what to truly give thanks for. But the, the Thanksgiving memory that I have, um, and there's so many wonderful memories of incredible wins and performances. And, um, but I mean, I could go back to, uh, my first Thanksgiving game when, um, uh, we had NBC doing the game, um, Dick Enberg and Merlin Olson and Ahmad Rashad was part of their crew. And he proposed to his wife, Felicia, um, live from the Silverdome. And I'm, I'm helping him. <laughs> I'm standing right by him, you know, giving him a cloth that he was sweating profusely because he was about to propose on national TV to his wife. That was a cool memory. 
Um, but just the, you know, the, the, the game in 91, which was two games after Mike Utley got injured and we had gone to Minnesota, uh, the next week and Barry had four touchdowns and we beat the Vikings and we're coming in to play the first place, first place bears. Uh, the bears were one game ahead of us. And this is our first home game since Mike got hurt, um, against the Rams on, uh, November 17th. Um, a week and a half earlier and on the way home from Minnesota, it just hit me. Um, you know, it's still not a hundred percent sure of how Mike was doing, but we were pretty convinced that he was going to be watching the game. So I compo- I, I composed a little note and I went to Lomas Brown. I said, Lomas, let's work on this. What do you think about if I can get it approved? Um, about you delivering a message to Mike live before kickoff, you know, on TV and the whole stadium will hear it and blah, blah, blah. So we were able to get it worked into the broadcast. I'm not sure the bears were real happy. I think they appreciated it, but you can imagine the impact it had on the crowd. So we got the microphone and, 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 uh, it would have been uh, it have been CBS in ninety one sent it sent it down to to uh, Lomas and it was you know Mike we know you're listening we know you're watching I want you to know that you're the biggest part of this team today as you've ever been you know we love you Mike we're praying for you we're pulling for you thumbs up Mike thumbs up and the place exploded I mean I got chills right now all over just. It exploded. It was so loud. And then, and then we got the opening kick and I think Mel Gray took it back like 50 yards. And so it set the tone for, for us to beat the bears that day. Um, so that was, that was a great memory, but, um, but to, to really share my all time memory on Thanksgiving with the lions, um, it was 2001 and, so when you hear 2001, well, didn't you guys lose that game? Yeah, we lost the game. So it was 2001. Um, it was Marty Morningwig's first year. We had not won a game yet going into this game. We're playing the Packers. We had our throwbacks on, our classic silver helmets with no logo and the you know darker blue jerseys. It was just a great look. And we're playing the Packers, and we hadn't won a game all year. We had come close, excruciatingly close a couple times. And we we get into the second half. We're trailing. Marty makes a change of quarterback, put, puts in Mike McMahon. And Mike, who could run, I mean, he was at very athletic. Um, he rallies us. The game goes down. We, there was a couple, you know, questionable calls during the game. The game goes down to the final minute. We score a touchdown. We're two points behind. We need a two-point conversion to tie it, I think, 29. I think it's 29-27, and uh, we fell. So we lose by two points. Heartbreaking, just gut-wrenching, right? So it's Thanksgiving. I think it was our, whatever, our 12th straight loss, right? So just devastating. So um, we get through all the post-game stuff. Um, I'm walking off the – actually, I'm walking off the field and um, one of my sons was at the game, and I think he was 10 or 11 at the time. And he was with a photographer friend of mine. And there was a there was a questionable call late in the game. And I'm walking with Marty, and we see the officials, and there was some discussion back and forth. And then the police came over, just coincidentally. But my young son sees me and the head coach with a discussion with the officials, and the police, and then he's gone to the house. Well, as the story goes, he gets into the house and tells everybody that daddy's getting arrested for yelling at the officials. That's what he thought was happening. But anyways, um, so I, I get Marty through the postgame media. We get the players. And, you know, on Thanksgiving, the, the players were off the next day. So everybody is getting out of that locker room. I mean, you you – you don't hang around after a devastating, heartbreaking loss anyways, right? So um, I walk Marty up. We were at the Silverdome. I walk Marty up to the office, and there's nobody there. All the assistant coaches are long gone. All the players are long gone. So I walk him out to his car, and, 
and he leaves. And now I go back um, to go to the press box because we still have media there. So on my way to the press box, I call home and I tell my, and we've got 30 people at the house for Thanksgiving, family and friends from all over. And I, I'm devastated. I'm just sick over this loss. And I, um, I call home and I just say, I'll be home tonight. I don't know when. Do not wait for me. Do not wait for me. Because I was so distraught over losing that game. Um, I was just going to drive. I was going to stay in the press box for about an hour or so um, doing my my work work. And then I, my plans were just to take a drive. And just I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to deal with anyone after that game. It was It was devastating. Um, we came so close. Um, so I, I go to the press box for an hour, an hour and a half, and then I'm leaving. My car's right outside the press box. And I'm not, you, you would remember how massive the Silverdome parking lot was. I mean, it, it held like 12,000 cars. I mean, it was a, a sea of asphalt. And so I get in my car and there's still probably, a dozen cars parked at the press box. Um, some some media still finishing up their stories. And it's pitch black by now, obviously. Um, I'm guessing it's probably six or seven o'clock. And I start driving and I'm gonna I'm gonna just go wherever, right? As I said. And way off in the distance, I could see something moving. And as I get closer, it's a little shinier. And I get closer and closer and closer and then it hits me and it's a elderly gentleman who's got a shopping cart. That was the reflection that my light car lights pick up and he's going through the parking lot, picking up bottles, beer bottles, pop bottles, anything he could redeem for the refund, the five cent, 10 cent refund. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I drive up to this guy and I'm thinking, he's got his whole life in that gar- that uh, grocery cart. He's got a sleeping bag. He's got clothes. He's obviously homeless. And I just like, it, it, I'm getting emotional thinking about it because here I am so upset about a game, okay, that we lost. <laughs> but yet here's a gentleman who probably – has never been to a game in his life. Who knows? Who knows? But he's scavenging a parking lot for bottles to return to maybe buy his next meal on Thanksgiving Day. So I uh, I stopped and talked to the guy, gave him some money, um, and I went right home after that because that put it all in perspective. And I think this year – um, for a lot of people, this Thanksgiving is going to be different too. Um, and I think if, if COVID hopefully has taught us anything, this experience, it's what to be thankful for truth, truthfully, because there's a lot of people that have lost loved ones, uh, to this virus and sadly more are going to be lost. So, um, you know, when I think of my great Thanksgiving memories, that's one that I'll always think of. How about that? We go into an interview thinking about what it's going to be like on the sidelines of an NFL Thanksgiving game or wanting to relive some of the memorable moments in number 20. (laughs) But then we're uh, we're reminded to really count our blessings and think of what we are thankful for. And I, I really do like that last story that he had to give. And that's why I told him when we were interviewing, I said, yep, that is where we're going to stop this one because that is a perfect way to end a Thanksgiving episode. And when this releases, it's the day before Thanksgiving. So tomorrow, I hope that you and however you're able to celebrate Thanksgiving, you're able to do so by remembering that story. They lost a game. But really, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. But we're going to still win, though. Detroit Lions are going to win. Go, baby. Go, Lions all the way. But again, like I said, I enjoyed this episode for obvious reasons. We got to talk about the greatness that was Barry, not just on the field, because man, I, I've watched and I've rewatched highlights of Barry Sanders probably 
five most of the youtube channel views recently have been from from yours truly you know i just every time i watch him it's just like it's amazing how can one individual be able to do that but he did and that's not even the best thing about barry sanders he only told two of the stories about his greatness and his humbleness but i tell you what there's so many more that are out there just flipping the ball to the ref that's something that you don't really see too often and again i personally enjoyed this episode well for obvious reasons that is and I hope that you were able to maybe relive some moments that you can remember from your childhood. Some Thanksgiving Day games, watching Barry Sanders, or maybe some other things. Sure, maybe you're a Cowboys fan. I, 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 I forgive you. That's okay. We can deal with that too. And maybe you could think about some of the things that you're truly thankful for. And again, if you wanted to reach out to one of our partners on the network, one of the hosts of a podcast or a blog artist or whatever, you can head to the contact page and we'll make sure that they get the message. I mean, personally... I'm super thankful for all of our Sports History Network partners, because without them, this mission that we're on to create the headquarters for sports yesteryear, it just wouldn't happen. They put in all of this research, they pour over time, and they do all of this for one mission, and that's to share, uncover, relive stories that were told from yesteryear, the sports that most of us have never even heard. So, in no particular order, I want to thank the following partners of the Sports History Network. First up, we have Joe Ziamba of When Football Was Football. Then we have Joe Zagorski of Pigskin Past. And Mark Morthier of Yesterday Sports. And Darren Hayes of Pigskin Dispatch. And Jeremy McFarlane of Footballist Family. And Dan and Andrew Newman of Hello Old Sports. John Gidley from Football Attic. Oz Davis from Truly the Goats. And last but not least, Tommy Phillips of Lombardi Memories. Now, I just rallied off 10 different names that have joined the network in the matter of the last, eh, I don't know, five months maybe, something like that. I mean, we're constantly growing and we're looking for more sports content, sports history content, that is, writers, podcasters, YouTubers, run the gamut. What we're trying to do is, again, we're trying to create the headquarters for sports yesteryear, and I want you to be a part of it. So if you're interested in starting your own show, your own podcast, that is even, about sports history or Maybe you want to jump into the shallow end of the sports yesteryear and you can write just one blog article. We can create a homepage for you on sportshistorynetwork.com. Head to the page, reach out via one of the contact forms, and we'll make sure that we get back with you. But for now, dude, happy Thanksgiving. And I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, Please subscribe with your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs>